Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian-in-Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Matthew chapter 3, the story of Jesus' baptism. What does baptism even mean for someone like Jesus? What kind of transition does this mark for him? And what does it mean for someone else to baptize Jesus? Can you even imagine the imposter syndrome John must have? We see in this story a call to action to do the hard work of turning our hearts and minds. And we also get to see the gorgeous and abounding delight that God takes in Jesus at this transitional moment. Thanks for listening. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Amy. I've been walking around this morning. So my kid, at the beginning of her school day, I don't know if they do this every place or not, but over the loudspeaker, they play the national anthem. And she has gotten very into me staying and singing the national anthem with her, uh, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But so what's happened to me today is that I've gotten gotten the national anthem stuck in my head. And so I'm like walking around (laughs) my office singing like a jazzy version of the national anthem. And, you know, like me, I'm not really like a sing the national anthem just like in the randomly in the morning. And I'm not really very jazzy. And so it is sort of awkward. And It's I a special I'll, combination. I have a bizarre, I mean, like truly bizarre love of the national anthem because it's really? so ridiculously big. It is so bombastic. Like I use it as a vocal warm up because it's oh, yeah. it's just impossibly big and I just yeah. feel like it gives you permission to like just, just bring it, it and you're just go for it. Yeah. And so I have this very strange memory of when my kids were a little younger and it was a, a hard moment for our family. There was just a lot going on and there was a, we were holding a lot of sadness as a unit. And um for whatever reason, we decided to sing the Star Spangled Banner as a way to like huh. blow off steam, like to because it's so <laughs> yeah. big. It is a very much a release. I love that. And my son, who was in fifth grade, I think at the time, sang so big <laughs> that he <laughs> threw up in the middle of it. <laughs> I did not know where that story was going. That was amazing. No, you would not. It was very unexpected. (laughs) It really was like. How big do you have to sing to make yourself barf? He was like. "Ah!" (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing. Oh, my goodness. It was really cathartic in in, like in body and soul. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Little did I know where that was going. There's a window into each of our households for our listeners this morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I, mean, I don't really know how to transition from either. that into our reading It's a big today. moment. So it's kind of a bombastic like, story. Yeah. Great. And we're done with that. And now we're going to read <laughs> chapter three from the book of Matthew, which is the story of Jesus's 
baptism. Yes. Now we have the great uh, privilege, I would say, when we're reading the gospel text the way the lectionary is set up. We don't skip around, really. We Certainly don't. not the way we do when we're when we're reading the Hebrew Bible. So I don't know that we need to really introduce much of anything. We have we have read chapter one and we have read chapter two. <laughs> I think that's right. I mean, what's happened narratively simply is, you know, they came back from Egypt and they went to Nazareth. Jesus was a infant-ish at the time, maybe a, maybe like a preschooler, singing the national singing anthem. Singing the national anthem. <laughs> it's a pre-K Good. class. And and now he's an now he's an adult. So you know we've skipped like twenty five years or something, but we've missed nothing in the in the narrative, whatever, whatsoever. Matthew's just not interested in Jesus's growing up, and so so that's where we are. He's been like a kid in Nazareth, and now he's gonna get baptized. And now as an adult, he's, baptized. he's like thirty. Adult. He's it. Yeah. Okay, so great. He's a great. That's so interesting that you know. Some of the, some, I mean, maybe this goes without saying, some of the writers are really are interested in what is child, what is baby Jesus and child Jesus like? And yeah. some of them are like, he was born and then the important stuff happened <laughs> 30 years later. I mean, yeah, the only stories we really get in the canonical gospels are those two stories in Luke, one where he gets, uh, visits the temple and is circumcised and then the other where he gets lost, which we talked about last year. Yeah. There's this amazing gospel though. If you're ever just looking for something to do, in early Christian literature, you know, uh-huh. on a rainy Tuesday called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. And it is like this collection of stories in which early Christians very clearly were like, what was Jesus like as a as a child? And so it's this amazing collection that tries to fill in the gap between when Jesus was born and that story where he goes to the temple at the age of 12. And mm. Jesus, so it's like a little baby with the like the power of God, but the impulses of a toddler. <laughs> and it is the most amazing. It is amazing, amazing that to read. Like a yeah. fun thing for me. It's super short. It's super short. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Beautiful. Well, for today, um, we're going to pick up in chapter three. I am reading from the NRSV. Let's do it. Let's do it. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It took everything I had not to sing the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. <laughs> that was lovely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm a real lover of Handel's Messiah. Yeah. Okay. So I did there I just have so many questions but let's let's begin let's begin at the beginning it's a very good place to start <laughs> When John the Baptist first you know is speaking here he says repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near Yeah and already in that I feel like there's so so much, much. For what is worth the CEB's translation mm. change your hearts and lives here comes the kingdom of heaven which is mm. like less poetic, 
but I think maybe on point in some interesting ways. I'm so glad you offered that because the first thing I was going to ask was about the word repent. Like that, I think just in English, I mean, I've probably have encountered it in different ways than you have, but it's, it feels so heavy to me. Yeah. Repent. So change your hearts and lives. Yeah, I was going to ask, what what do you think what do you think that command is? What do you think he's asking for? Do you think it's change your hearts and lives? Yeah, I mean the Greek word there, metanoeo or metanoia in the nominal form, I think is related to the Hebrew shuv or teshuva. Yeah. Which I know has particular resonances in your tradition that are probably kind of in the background here. So I'm really interested yeah. in like when you Think about that concept from a Jewish perspective. Like, what what does that mean to you? I mean, I think of tshuva is uh, like the <laughs> the key word <laughs> of the high holidays yeah. that we have in the fall, um, and it's this time where you sort of are are instructed to reflect on on your past year and the ways in which you have gotten off the path that you're supposed to be on. And yeah. tshuva is really like a a call to turn back. Like it, yes. it has like a, a turning element to it. Turn back to, to where you ought to be. So there's this suggestion that like you already were there once. Like yes. this is not so far from you. Um, you know where the path is, but you have to recognize where you are and where the path is and, and get back to it. I heard this beautiful description of it a while ago in a, a Jewish podcast that was, it was talking about meditation and sort of what is, the role of meditation in Jewish tradition. And it, it talked about, as many of our listeners have probably heard, the instructions when you're meditating are, you know, you, you try to sort of focus on your breath and focus, like stay in the moment, focus on what's happening in your body. And inevitably, your mind is going to go somewhere else. That is the natural human yeah. way of things. And so you when you see that has happened, you just pull your mind, you just get just bring it back. Like there's yeah. not really judgment on the fact that it has strayed, but just the next thing to do is bring it back. And that was held up as this, like, that's tshuva. Like, yeah, it is, oh, the, like it is the way of things that we will stray from the path, but it is our job to notice and then, and then come back, which has such a different feeling about it than the feeling of the English word repent to me. No, that's exactly right, Amy. I really appreciate that background because I, I think that's what this text is saying. Like repentance oftentimes in the Christian context and especially North American Christianity mm-hmm. feels like you're kind of a bad person and mm-hmm. so you've and you've like are marred by sin and so you should put off your it's very spiritual, put off your sins and like be a, you know, be made clean or something. Yeah. And I'm that is kind of here. Like we're in a baptism story and there is a washing that is taking place. But the emphasis that you're bringing from your tradition, I think, is exactly what's in this text, which is there is a way of life that to which you have been called. It reminds me of Micah. Uh, he has shown you, oh, mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require mm-hmm. of you? Like, uh, you know what it is. You've been told what it is. It's there. You've done it. You can do it. But you're off the path. And so the change your heart and mind, I think, is important because there is an internal shift that must happen. It's a recommitment to certain kinds of priorities. And they play out in very tangible ways in the way that your life is lived. So this mm-hmm. is not a purely spiritual, yeah. not a purely internal mm-hmm. idea, but very much a your way of life needs to change. 
And that requires a recommitment to the things of heaven, which you already know what they are. I think that's exactly what John is saying. That's, that's really helpful. To identify that in the Jewish tradition to me is also helpful in this text because he's going to be really critical of some uh, Pharisees and Sadducees in a mm-hmm. little bit. And, mm-hmm. and that helps to see that it's not that he's saying something like, you should repent of the thing you have been committed to and be committed to something else. It, it is an internal conversation about you're not living the tradition that God has given you correctly. Like this is, this is a yearly thing that is done in the Jewish tradition itself. This is not something that's like a critique from outside, yeah. but a, a, a moderation from inside. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And the other thing that I love about what you pointed out and that that comes through in your translation is, you know, again, just my associations with the English word repent, which yeah. are, not, are not deep or particularly learned, but we're not really talking about a confession mm. or the confession's not, certainly not yeah. the, the whole of it. Yeah. And we're not talking about like, you should feel ashamed, like those you know, it's, yeah. it's change. It, it is calling for a change, change your hearts and minds, change your yeah. acts. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we, maybe we should put aside the English word Yeah. or I should, maybe other people don't have that association with it. No, I think that's a pretty common association. And I think, I think your assessment of it is correct. And I think that's going to come back at the end of this text in an interesting way when Jesus is baptized because Jesus is doing the things that thing that John's calling other people to do, and so somehow you have to yeah. like make make all of that fit together. Yeah. So I, th- I think you're exactly right. The other thing in this verse that stands out is that it, it, it says the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. In my translation, has come near. Yeah. As opposed to the kingdom of God, which yes. I think some of the other gospels have kingdom of God. They do. This is actually distinctively Matthew, which is interesting. What do you make of that? What's the what's the difference? Or if we assume intention, which is always always fun to assume, what's the difference? Well, you know, I've got two associations that I that I can make, and I'm not sure which or either. But so one idea is that we've talked about how Matthew is the most Jewish of the gospels. He seems to be talking mm-hmm. to a Jewish audience. He himself probably is Jewish, who has come to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And so one way of understanding it is that in a Jewish tradition, like speaking the name of God is problematic. And so the way of saying the kingdom of heaven is a way of not identifying or pronouncing the God's name. Although there are things one could say that wouldn't be pronouncing God's name. The other way that I would tend to read it is the phrase there in the Greek is basileia ton uranon. And that word basileia, which we translate kingdom, is the same word that the Roman Empire used to describe itself. And so mm. one might translate this the empire of heaven. If That's you translate it that way, that you hear that you hear the critique, right? Empire of Rome, empire of heaven. And so I like the reading that there is sort of a locale that is there. There's a like there's an empire that is located in Rome. There is an empire that is located in heaven. And these two are in tension with one another, which we already saw in the story of Herod in the last text. And so that sort of captures that in a way that that empire of God 
I mean, it kind of, you end up in the same place, but it feels different to yeah. associate it with a person rather than like a realm. Not a person, but you know what I mean. A being rather than a realm. Does any of that go anywhere for you? Yeah, for sure. I just, I, while, you were, while you were talking, I started thinking also of like the, the text that is, that is coming next, which, well, we'll get to that text in a minute. But I, th- I think absolutely this, the idea of sort of like backing away yet further from uttering the divine name is, is real and important mm-hmm. for pious Jews at this time. I really like the idea that, you know, I don't know, I don't remember which episode it was, but I feel like we had a conversation recently about this idea of sort of symmetry between what's happening in the heavens and what's happening yes. on earth, like some sort oh, yeah. of ref- reflection across the, you know, I don't know, the, the horizon. And so I'm, I'm enjoying thinking about this as, you know, there is this whole kingdom in heaven and, and the reflection is coming to be true yeah. On earth also. That phrasing there at the end of, I mean, in my text, here comes the kingdom of heaven. In your text, mm. the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. I think is trying to get exactly at that point that you're making there at the end, that these two realms are not realms that are widely separated in space and time, but they are close to each other. They are unfolding simultaneously in the here and now. And so for Matthew, there is an urgency about the presence of the kingdom of heaven, not like some future place where you go and you die off yeah. somewhere, but like, here it is, like, it's right. You could reach out and touch it if you wanted to. And it's overlaid on this other empire. And so mm-hmm. we we live in that in a complicated intersection of those two empires. And that's going to make some demands on, on, on us. Yeah. It's also making me think you're you're pulling in the idea of, you know, the empire that they're living, that the political empire that they're a part of right now is making me think back to, you know, the time of Pharaoh and the story of the Exodus and mm. how there was this sort of you're you're being taken from the power, saved, taken from the power of Pharaoh yeah. and given to the power of God. It's not like you emerge into exactly. total freedom and nothingness. Right. It's it is you now have a different king, yeah. and this seems like an extension of that. There now is a different kingdom. Yes. That's emerging. That's exactly right. Yeah. But we're not moving from here to there or from there to here. We are yeah. simultaneously in both, and, that, and that's, therein lies the difficulty in, in, living, yeah. in living a life of faith, I think. It really reminds it's making me think about Stranger Things, Bobby. Have you watched Stranger <laughs> yes, Things? the Upside it's Down. Like the yeah. Upside Down. I don't know which yeah. one's the Upside Down, but. Oh, clearly, uh, clearly Rome is the Upside Down. Clearly Rome is the Upside <laughs> yeah. Down. Yeah. It's very interesting. Okay. And then this incredibly famous quote, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Mm. Will you talk a little bit about the, uh, the Hebrew Bible context of that quote and sort of what it where it is and, and what it seems to mean there. And then we can get to what it seems to mean here. Yeah, that text is quite the famous introduction to the second part of Isaiah. Mm. It's spoken by the prophet at the end of the exile. So the people in that original context have been in Babylon for some 50 years away from their homeland, being punished uh, doubly so, says Isaiah, for their sins. And 
now some, the world is about to change. God is coming to set the people free. And there is this call that goes out uh, spoken by a heavenly voice, not entirely mm. clear to whom, but maybe mm-hmm. to angelic figures, maybe to the people of Israel that says, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so the call there seems to be that some sort of divine figures or maybe some sort of uh, the people of Israel are supposed to take the wilderness and make it a place where God can, can appear. It's kind of interesting. I, that's how I would read that anyway. But I'm curious what you would say. Here's what you would say about it. There's one place where where my reading of it differs from yours. And now I'm like, is my reading dumb? I don't know. That will be for the people to decide. <laughs> people, is this reading dumb? Yes, absolutely, to the, the context in which this is happening. And, you know, a, a long time ago, previous season, not even last season, maybe a couple seasons ago, I think we talked about this text in Isaiah. And one of the things we talked about was they've been in exile for long enough that there are, there are lots of people who don't have any memory of yeah. being in Jerusalem and yeah. they're kind of integrated into life in Babylon as Jeremiah told them they should be. And so asking them to make this long and kind of treacherous journey back, like they needed some encouragement to do that. Like why, yeah, <laughs> why, why should they do that? And so I see this call as part of that that it's an encouragement for the people to, like, that that you're, the paths will be set for you. Like, that the, the, the one walking on the path is not the Lord so much as the people coming yeah. back from diaspora. Yeah. But I think I, I love actually reading both of those layered on top of each other. I do too. And honestly, I go back and forth between those two readings. I have often read it the way that you're reading it. Oh, good. So it's not that dumb. I have been sort of convinced in my own mind recently that, I mean, if you read on uh, in the CEB, clear the Lord's way in the desert, make a level highway in the wilderness for our God. And then skipping down, the Lord's glory will appear and humanity will see it together. That to me reads just on the face of it, like what you're doing is preparing the way for the Lord to appear so the nations can see. Mm. But I like your reading of it too. One could read the Lord's highway Right. As like the king's the highway, highway that you're going to walk down. Yeah. Right. It's not that the king walks on the highway. It's that the king has prepared a highway so that you can get from here to there. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that makes good sense too. And actually where you were headed, where, where it's both of those things <laughs> in true Bible worm fashion. Yeah. Right. Like, I, I think there's something important about that. And, you know, they, they go together really nicely because when the nations see Israel returning across the desert to the land, they will see and recognize that God has done something profound. Mm-hmm. And so those two things are not really in as much tension as they, as they might at first seem. Yeah. So I affirm your reading. And, also and I affirm mind. yours. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Well, then we just added a whole other layer because here, here it's obviously being read in the context of, of this moment in history. Mm-hmm which in some ways is feeling a little bit like um, pretty similar to your reading, like prepare the way of the Lord, except by the Lord here, maybe we mean sort of the Lord as embodied in Jesus. Is that how you would? That's the way I read it. Yeah. Yeah. So prepare the way of the Lord. So yeah. So 
the way that I read Matthew's adoption of this is that John the Baptist is the one who is meant to sort of prepare the ground for Jesus to come. It's like John is tilling the soil for Jesus to come and sow the seeds or something like that. John's preparing the way for Jesus. Mm-hmm. But, and it is also the case that Jesus is making a straight path for the people to follow. And mm. so like the, pr- the preparation, it still works, I think, in both of those ways. But John's job, I think, is to prepare the way for Jesus, which then subsequently prepares the way for, for people. I love how those things just sort of like, circ- it like circles back onto itself, you yeah, know? Exactly. And I feel like this is just another, I know I said this last week too, but it, <laughs> I keep thinking about the, the pastors who have commented in the Narrative Lectionary Facebook group about congregants who don't want to read the Hebrew Bible because yeah. it doesn't seem important to them. Yeah. And I just think there is so much yeah. richness and sort of like, I don't know, magic or holiness if yeah. if we're able to see these words as like having the potential to hold multiple meanings that yes. can shift depending on the lens you're using. It's really like a corrective to the idea that we can get super concrete about anything so complex as yes. this story, which maybe is scary to some people. Maybe they want to know exactly what this means, but I yeah. think, I don't know. I, I think it is precisely in that sort of uh, <laughs> vagueness or complexity yeah. or like multiple pointing in a lot of different directions that um, that's where the good stuff is. It is. And, the, you know, the New Testament writers were absolutely doing that where they're telling yes. a new story and they're using it in a way that's interweaving the story that they already know from their tradition. And that like, it's not that we're, you know, like reading something onto something else. It's that the, they are intricately connected. And so, I mean, it's like if you if you talk about the kingdom of heaven as the upside down, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense if you haven't right. seen Stranger Things. But if you yeah. have seen Stranger Things, then you're like, oh my gosh, like I totally get what you mean. Yeah. And so like that's the same relationship between, not the same, but it's connected <laughs> between the, the yeah. two Testaments, right? It's yeah. like some of those quick mentions of things have a whole richness to them. Right, they have you, a whole different level of, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can only get there if you know those texts and kind of inhabit them a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so we learned then that John is an interesting fashion icon and dietary <laughs> yeah. guru. Yeah. Which I, I'm guessing is trying to pull up imagery of Elijah. It is, absolutely yeah. it is. As the little, the locust eating wild honey uh, guy, I know that Elijah is, you know, in the, in the Hebrew Bible text, it, it never announces his death. Right. And so there is a, a hope within the Jewish people still to this day that Elijah will return to announce the, the beginning of the Messianic era. Sure. And that Elijah's return is, is like the mark of that. And so, so here's John slash Elijah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's really important, Amy, both of those things. And, you know, there's actually a reference in 2 Kings 1.8 uh, where uh, people are looking for Elijah and they say, um, can you describe him? And the people respond, he wore clothes made of hair with a leather belt around his waist. And so that's a pretty clear yeah, uh, reference that's there. That's distinctive. And then the messianic hope uh, that you're talking about there at the end is very clear in at the end of the book of Malachi 
which in the Christian tradition is the last book of the Hebrew Bible, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is different in the Jewish right, tradition, Right, it's not of in, the, in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew So Bible. if you read straight through from the First Testament into the New Testament, then mm-hmm. you've just read that verse like two chapters ago, and that the yeah. verses say, look, I'm sending Elijah the prophet to you before the great and terrifying day of the Lord arrives. So there is very clearly a statement that Elijah precedes the Messianic era, and it's you're primed in the Christian ordering of the the Hebrew canon to, to be ready for that. So that. that is absolutely what's happening right here. Yeah. Okay, great. And then we're, we're, we've spent a long time in this first section, but there's just so much in it. Yeah. There's this, this ritual immersion happening in the Jordan in particular. Yes. We talked in this, this year's show about the Jordan as really being understood as a, a body of water that has different kinds of yeah. powers than just any yeah. old body of water. We read that story about the, he was not an Israelite. What, I don't remember what national, nationality. Syrian, not Amman the Syrian. Syrian, not, not Amman oh, the Syrian. Syrian, Syrian. yeah. Syri- okay, who, who, who is healed by, by bathing in the Jordan. Yeah. We might have called him an Aramean. I can't. Re- I can't quite remember. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. One of those things. One of those things. Yes. He, that is true. And I, I had not really connected that story to this story, but I think it's well. I don't right, know. It's right it, there I for don't the know connecting. If it needs to be connected, like, because it's not that it, ritual immersions have to happen in the Jordan, but that's right. just where that's just where this is happening. I think that's right. I mean, and certainly the Christian tradition, anyway, would get really nervous if you said there's something magical about the Jordan waters themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But the Jordan is significant symbolically in all of the ways that we were just talking about. And of course, it's the river that, you know, separated when the Israelites crossed into the land. And it's the river that where Naaman was cleansed of his leprosy. And so all of those stories that there is an entry into a new way of being that is happening here. There is a Mm -hmm. cleansing of things that appear as though they cannot be cleansed. Like all of that stuff from the Hebrew scripture is it's in the, it's in the mix when you say John is baptizing in the Jordan. I, I think we can, mm-hmm. even if we don't want to go all the way to saying the Jordan has some particular properties in right. and of itself, right. it has symbolic significance in some really, really important ways. Yeah, yeah. I think the last thing I want to touch on, and then I know we need to move on, but just is, is what, what is happening with ritual immersion I mean, you know, throughout the Hebrew Bible, there are references to, you know, needing to bathe or be immersed in water in a ritual context. Right. And it it signifies sort of a a different state of being in relation to holiness in, in the ritual world of the temple. Right. There's a shift in, you know, in, in, I can speak as like a, a modern Jew. There's still we still have a ritual bath called the mikvah, and it it can be used for occasions that are you know people would go for a conversion or for like really sort of changing your the state of who you are yes. in the world. And it also has a pretty normal everyday. You know, people go for special occasions, and they also go. You know, many traditional women go after they finish their menstrual cycle to just mark that it's done. And so you yes. might go monthly. It's, you know, and so it's not yeah. a red letter occasion. At this period in history for these people, what do you think this was? Yeah. It's a complicated question, Amy. And, you know, I think what John is doing here 
has resonances with what is happening in Judaism in the first century. Mm-hmm. I also think John is kind of doing something a little different. And so figuring out exactly the overlaps is complicated, but absolutely there is a connection between what he's doing and ritual, ritual purification, making oneself sort of clean in the presence of uh, God. It is, it is like that in, in one sense, but very much different as you're saying, because this is, seems to be something you do once mm-hmm. and, yes. and it is done to you by someone else, whereas ritual purification is something you might you know, just bathe in the yes. place and then you might yes. do it, re- you would do it repeatedly depending. Uh-huh. And so it is related to that sort of making oneself pure in the presence of God, but it's not exactly the same as that. Yeah. It is also true that toward this period of time in Judaism, the categories of ritual purity and moral purity were not as neat as they were, mm-hmm. say, in the book of Leviticus. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the idea of washing one's sins is not uniquely John, that mm-hmm. he is sort of participating in something that's happening um, to cleanse oneself of the wrongdoing one has done. Mm-hmm. There, John is also said here earlier to be in the desert of Judea, which seems to be sort of down the hill from Jerusalem toward the Dead Sea, which is where Qumran and the Essenes were. And they were very much water people. <laughs> There's all, all kinds yes. of water rituals yep, yep, happening yep, yep. there, which had these mm-hmm. connotations. All of that said, the one that you mentioned that I think I don't think that I think is really important that I maybe have not thought about enough is the practice of ritual immersion for conversion. Mm-hmm. This is a Jewish practice that was actually pretty common in the first century for proselyte uh, conversion. That when you went from being a Gentile to becoming Jewish, you would be immersed, and it would it would acknowledge your changing from the one way of life to the other way of life. Yeah. Which is still sort of a practice. It is oh, a practice. for sure. Yes. Yeah. That is part of a, part of a conversion is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, so John, what John is doing has all those other resonances, but also, and maybe in a bigger way, it seems to have the resonance of you are moving from one way of life into a new way of life. Mm-hmm. And this baptism is marking that conversion. Mm-hmm. It is interesting because John is baptizing Jews mm-hmm. who are on the other side of the baptism are still just are Jews. Jews. Yes. So they haven't changed their religion. They've yeah. just, it's like they're changing their way of life they're in the like way that we. Orientation towards, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's like Shuva that we were talking about before, yeah. but like a little bit amped up. <laughs> right? It's not like a yeah. it's not like a yearly thing doing. Now it's like a okay, you're gonna change your life here and now and you're gonna get back on that path and here it is. So I think that's kind of what like John is John's baptism is in all of has connections in all of those places, but it seems to have that dramatic sort of like you have been living one way and now you're gonna live another way. Yeah. That seems to be the connotation. But it's not a it's not a conversion from one religion to another. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. I feel like I talked a lot about that. <laughs> no, I think that's I think that's all really important. And I, I feel aware that we've been talking about this first section for a while, but it's so juicy. It is. So are we ready are you ready to move on, Bobby? Is there anything else burning a hole in your pocket from this section? The only thing I would say is the baptism includes the confession of sins. And I just want to reconnect that to what you were saying earlier about Shuva, that this is not like I swear too much or I drink, you know, it's, it's like, it's like the way that you are living 
Mm-hmm. You need to confess that the way that you have been living, like writ large, is a problem and that they're, they commit yourself to something different. I just think that can sound a little trite or a little spiritual sometimes. And in fact, it is very much about the, the day-to-day life that, that one leads. Yeah. Yeah. And it's certainly not, I, you know, swear too much or drink too much. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 I confess, yeah. but I am but a weak mortal, you know, like, right. well, that's, so I'm going to keep yeah, doing that's it. That's not really then, what we're yeah. looking for. I know. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here. This month, Bible Worm has a special offer just for you. If you've ever thought about joining our Patreon, now is the time. For the month of January, we're giving all our subscribers access to the full range of Bible Worm features. If you join now at the Bible Worm supporter level, can get early access to episodes, weekly worship liturgies, and video Bible studies, all for just $4 for the month. If you've ever wanted to try out our Patreon, now's the time. We hope you'll join us. And now, back to this week's episode. All right, then I'm going to pick up in verse 7. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Ouch. That's a little scary, Bobby. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little scary. I think this fits so well into, into our conversation before, this, this call that John is making to the religious leadership. Yes. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Like, yes. put your money where your mouth is. Do yes. the hard stuff. Yes. Yeah. I think that's exactly right, Amy. And, you know, it's calling to mind Amos, which we read last year, or Micah, mm-hmm. which we read this year, in which the, like, this line about don't say Abraham is our father mm-hmm. is a little bit, it's exactly what you're saying. It's saying that there is no way, there's not any ritual way, yep. there's not any identificatory way. I don't know if that's yeah. a word. Mm-hmm, it uh, is now. <laughs> you got to do the work, y'all. That's what it is. So yes. don't come here and praise the Lord when you're not living a life that is in the way of the of God's justice. This John is not doing something here that is different from what has been done. I mean, it is different because of Jesus. Because Jesus. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, but the but the basic idea. Yes. Mm-hmm. So critiquing the religious leadership, critiquing the elites, like that. He is in a long, long line of Hebrew Bible prophets who have yeah. who we have seen have been doing that before. And I feel like by putting together this call for, okay, when he says bear fruit worthy of repentance, 
we imagine he's talking about like their deeds, right? Exactly. Like, do yeah. the things that are yes. that are worthy. We don't want your symbolic acts and confessions exactly. if you're not doing the things. And it and it it feels like putting that together, like juxtaposed with this, don't go around saying, Abraham's my father. Like yeah. those are two frankly pretty lazy ways. Yes. <laughs> to go about the idea that everything's fine and you're 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 fine, you're good with God. Yes. Because you haven't done anything. <laughs> yes. Or you haven't done anything hard. So you can either try to rely on the merit of your ancestors or the special chosenness of your people or whatever, or you can say, great, I'll show up for this symbolic act. Dip me in water that's going to take 30 seconds and right. we'll call it good. Right. Yeah, John's not having any of that. Yeah, I love what you did just there at the end because it comes back to that Micah passage that we read earlier, which was like, with what shall I come before the Lord? Shall I come with sacrifice or 10,000? And, and we were talking about how like, <laughs> yeah. what's the ritual I can do to make this right? And one could say baptism is the ritual that you can do to make this right. Mm -hmm. But you're exactly right when John says, don't come here asking for baptism if you think that's what it is. Right. right. If you, the easy religious ritual you can do to make everything better, this is not about that. This is about right. committing to doing the work of justice, kindness, yeah. and humility. I think yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. If this is your turning point— Baruch Hashem, great. Yes. And if this is if this is all there is, like this is like the icing on the cake. But if there's no cake, it doesn't matter. Like you, you <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah. The fruit conversation is also reminding me of uh, the vineyard of the Lord in Isaiah 5, which we read. I mean, it's been a long time since we read that on the podcast, maybe a couple years ago now. But, you know, uh, God plants a vineyard and expects it to produce delicious grapes that make, it's going to make great wine, and instead it produces thorns and thistles and bitter grapes. And that idea, like the, and that, that's because there is injustice. And so this idea of there is something has been planted that should bear delicious fruit, but if it doesn't, it's going to get cut down. Like that mm -hmm. imagery mm -hmm. in and of itself also has a long history. and is reminiscent of, it's not exactly the same as, but it's certainly reminiscent of Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you are the one who introduced years ago on this podcast that instead of referring to the, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees as like the Jewish leaders to say like they're yeah. the religious leaders at the time. And yeah. I, I find that really helpful for a lot of reasons, but one of them is sort of maybe it goes without saying this kind of like religious laziness it happens all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> like people might put different words around yes. instead of saying like, well, my ancestor is Abraham to say like, well, I've accepted Jesus into my heart, so I don't have to do anything. Like yes. it's the same. It's the same thing. You're doing the same thing. It is. It exactly is. Yeah. yeah. And you know, if you know anything about first century Judaism, you know that Pharisees and Sadducees are not the same, right? You know, right. like they don't hang out together really. In fact, they were sort of a little bit they, in conflict with each other. Yeah, they sort of were other. a little bit against each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I think that I think that is important that the, like it it is not just one group of people, and that it's the it's the religious elite. That's exactly yes, right. Yes, yes, yes. And we see that in all times and places and in all traditions. John's critique of the religious leaders uh, is not new in the Hebrew Bible, as we were saying, and it, it, it pertains yet even today amongst not only uh, Jewish, but maybe even 
especially Christian leaders, or at least some, yeah. some of us. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if I would say the bar is higher, but I'm thinking back to Leviticus, because I would like to think back to Leviticus, <laughs> and the way that it thinks differently when religious leaders have lost their way yes. versus when, you know, yes. Joey Israel has lost their way. <laughs> yeah. Not necessarily because they have like a different state of being in the universe. I mean, that might sort of be, I don't know, you know, people debate about what the what Leviticus means by that, but because they're leading people. Right. So if people are following your lead and you're off in la la land, like right. it's it is a little bit of a higher bar. Like you need to you need to get it together. So the level yeah. of frustration with religious leadership here. I would imagine is also tied into like that increased responsibility of. I think that's exactly right. Of that place in society. Yeah. The Sadducees are particularly associated with the temple. And so like Mm -hmm. very much the religious center of the time and also the interface between Judea and Rome. And so the temple and the Sadducees especially were in a difficult place where they were both trying to be true to the tradition, and also trying to keep the peace with the empire. And I think a little bit what John is saying is, you can't live there, y'all. Like, keeping the peace with the empire, the cost is high. And so, I mean, I feel for the Sadducees in this I mean, I wouldn't want that job. It's a terrible job. Yeah. But if that's your job, that's your job. (laughs) And a lot of us occupy similar spaces, I think. In the contemporary world. Yeah. So to identify with the Sadducees, I think, is important instead of saying, like, ha, I'm glad I'm not a Sadducee. Yeah. Right. To ask ourselves, in what way are we actually Sadducees? Yeah. Yeah. This language about the axe at the root of the, or the <sighs> stump, what is it? Yeah, and the fire's here. And, like, the way that I read that is the prophets from the Hebrew Bible were always saying, like, when the day of the Lord gets here, this mm. stuff is going to happen. Mm. What John is saying is the day of the Lord is here, y'all. This mm-hmm. thing it's that like you tomorrow. thought. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you might have been doing the math. Like, can I, how, how long can I live this one way before it matters? John is now saying, like, today's the day. It, 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 mm. it is, like, about to happen. And so the luxury of living in between these two ways of life is no longer because this Jesus thing in his understanding is about to change everything. Yeah. I love that. That it's just adding this sort of urgency to the message that we already would have had right. from the Hebrew Bible at that time. And and the other thing that, oh gosh, I feel like I'm maybe being a little defensive, which I don't mean to be, but I just, I, I know there is this, um, Accusation is the wrong word. Understanding, experience maybe of the Hebrew Bible, the way God is portrayed in the Hebrew Bible sometimes as being overly violent and punitive. Yeah. And I certainly experience the text that way too. I think I think most Jewish readers do. I think most readers do. And I just want to like pull out here that this is, um, <laughs> I don't yes. know that this is any better. You know, like if, if uh, this is not a softening of that. no. This is not a softening of that. Yeah, I hear this from uh, students and some some church people all the time that the this old Christian idea that the God of the Hebrew scriptures is 
violent in the it's God of the New Testament vengeful. is cuddly. Yeah. And both of those are wrong. Like, yeah, God is sometimes, Yes. God has lots of characteristics in yes. both of yes. those testaments. kind of a maniac. Mm-hmm. But here Jesus is depicted as one coming with fire and a winnowing yeah. uh, hook and threshing out the husks and burning them. Like there's nothing gentle or soft or kind about that. I struggle with it. And the way that I've kind of made sense of it for myself, I mean, this is not original to me by any stretch, but is that when you have a world that is operating in unjust ways, there it you can't, I mean, we've said this on the podcast recently, mm-hmm. you can't just go from like unjust world to just world without there being some upheaval in the middle. You got to get people to stop with the injustice in order to bring in something that looks different. And I mean, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't feel good about it, but I think that it's true. And so the depictions of God that way in the Hebrew Bible, the picture of Jesus that way here is not that they like enjoy being violent. It's that they want there to be a just world. And how are you going to get there? is not entirely like without there being some some winnowing or some chopping or some burning. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking of that um a while ago we had a special episode where we talked with Brent Strawn, who is yes. one of our teachers at Emory and who now is at Duke. Yeah, he's at right. Duke. About a book you'd written called Lies My Preacher Told Me. It's a good book, you should read it. But one of the things that really stood out to me in his book and in our conversation was how to wrestle with texts like this and and do we really do we really want a god who doesn't yes respond seriously when everything has been you know to 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 the kinds of wickedness that prevail yes in the world so i i don't i still i still wrestle with it i'm I not do saying too. this a settled issue for me by any means but i think often of the way that the kind of clarity that uh, dr strawn that brent has has about it in that book. And uh, I, I try it on again and again to see if to see if it fits just right for me. I think that I remember that conversation very well also. And one of the things he was doing, I think in the podcast, but definitely in the book, was he was going back to Abraham Joshua Heschel and the, the, dif- the distinction between the God of wrath mm. and the wrath of God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have a God who is wrathful and Heschel and Strawn and I said, <laughs> I think you think like God is not characterized by wrath, but mm-hmm. the wrath of God suggests there is a God who sometimes must act in that wrathful way. It's not who God is, but something God must do in the interest of justice. Mm-hmm. To me, that distinction, I mean, I wrestle mm-hmm. with that distinction too, but I, I think it's worth, I think it's worth keeping in mind. Is there anything else you want to draw out from this section, Bobby? The only other thing that I would say is that we talked about Mark's version of this same part two years ago on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And we talked about some different things. And so if people are wanting to think more about this section, like you could go back and listen to that Mark podcast. I don't, it's, I don't quite remember where it is, but somewhere in the 200s, (laughs) like (laughs) 220-ish. Yeah. So I don't think there's more we need to say here, but we brought out some different things when we talked about it previously. It's so interesting how different things come out depending on the, the moment, depending on the moment. And also what, depending on what Hebrew Bible text you've just been reading too, I think. That's true. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, then I'm going to pick us up in verse 13 and take us to the end. Yes. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Mm. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Well, I understand John's objection. Yes. Like, is this really the way that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want me really? to do what now? <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. I was just singing, prepare ye the way of the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Why does Jesus want John to baptize him? Yeah. Amy, that's such a good question. And there, there's a couple of ways of answering it. One of them is historical, which I think is the least interesting, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. In Mark's gospel, which seems to be the underlying story here, John does not object. He's just like, cool, I'll do it. And so there is an argument that early Christians had exactly the same worry that you had, which was like, wait, what is happening? Can John really do that? The one who is more powerful usually baptizes the one who is less powerful. So what are we doing here? And so that Matthew sort of interjected this objection to say like, no, no, really, y'all, it was fine. Jesus said it was okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which then historical Jesus people then take to say like, Jesus probably was actually baptized by John because there's this story that's kind of scandalous in the way it was originally told. So whatever you'd want to do with that. To me, that thing Jesus says in verse 15 is so interesting. It is. Allow me to be baptized now. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is not just saying like, it's fine. Mm -hmm. Jesus is saying that it must be this way. And the reason is because this fulfills all righteousness. Now that is theological. Like, I don't quite know what we're going to want to do with it. (laughs) But like, that is theologically much, much richer than like, it was probably a little embarrassing Mm -hmm. to early Christians. Mm-hmm. Here, the closest I have gotten is something like this. We were talking about baptism as the moving from the one way of life into the other way of life, from the empire of Rome to the empire of heaven. And that move is about righteousness, which you and I today have been talking about and previously in terms of tshuva, not just the, your heart and soul, but the way that you live, the things you do, the justice you enact, the way you treat your neighbors, all of those things, your way of life. The way that I am reading it is Jesus, up until this moment, has been living like we do in the empire of the day, which is not to say that he's been sinful, although he is being baptized here in what John is giving as a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But he has been living in the ways of, of the empire. Like, it's just what you do. That's what you do and I do and everybody does. And so when he undergoes this baptism, it is marking a transition from the one way of life to the other way of life. Mm. Jesus needs us to see that. He needs us to know that he did it. He needs us to recognize that living in the world is itself uh, requires repentance and changing. Not because Mm. it was bad, 
but just because it's not the way that God wants the king, the kingdom of heaven to look. And so to fulfill all righteousness, I read is I had to go through this so that you know that you have to go through it so you can see the mark in which here's what living out the kingdom of heaven looks like. And then Jesus lives out the righteousness of heaven from here through the end of the gospel. And that establishes the standard Mm -hmm. by which followers of Jesus ought to also be living once they have made that transition. That's the best I've gotten. I'm not sure that's right. I love it. I love the idea that even Jesus has to make an intentional choice at some point to abandon the the ways of the empire and that whether you want to live in them or not, like unless you are really actively refusing them, they're there. Like that's just, that's the water we're in. I love the idea that because it does, it marks, it does mark a very significant transition. Yes. That's, I love it. When I, when I first read it, I thought to fulfill all righteousness, I almost read it as like, they're kind of checking the boxes, even though they don't really think that it's needed. Or, I mean, we could imagine, I mean, I don't know what Jesus knew was needed, we could imagine that maybe it just seemed like this seems like the right thing to do, even if we don't totally know why. Mm-hmm. But then something in, like really incredible happens as a result of yes. it. Yes. Do you think, this is an imagination question because we have no way to know. Do you, do you think Jesus ha- like thought that would happen? That's an impossible question. I don't even know why I'm asking that. I mean, it's like the heavens, the veil is pulled back between heaven and earth, like these sort of overlapping kingdoms, and everything shifts. Yes. That observation is so important. And like literally the veil is pulled back. The kingdoms are united in this moment, in this action. And you can no longer think that they are distant from each other in either time or space. And that inaugurates something different. Like Jesus has always lived presumably in the presence of God and has always Mm -hmm. been connected. But now the time has changed with this baptism. And those, I think that's exactly it. Those two have overlapped. I think Jesus knew he was inaugurating something here. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he knew exactly like, what was going to happen and there was going to be a dove and a voice from heaven. Yeah. Yeah. But I think he knew the other thing that I've been thinking as you're talking is, you know, the empire is going to kill Jesus within a year of this inauguration of the new kingdom. Like the empire is going to notice that there is a, somebody living an alternative way of life. Yeah. And so the question of like, why, why now, or like, why not before now is because, I mean, I think because it it's really hard to, the empire does not like people living in an alternative reality. Yeah. And so like Jesus had to sort of be in the world until it was time to show what it looks like to not be living right. in the empire. And until he was, he was ready, like at his full strength to do as much as he could do in the short time that the empire was going to give him. Yes. Which is one of the reasons why I love this, like the voice from heaven that says, this is my son whom I dearly love. I find happiness in him is that CEB's Mm. translation. You talk on the podcast every once once in a while. I think last year, maybe it was in the anointing of Jesus's feet in John 
12 or whatever that is that we talked about, but about how hard Jesus, harshly Jesus is treated in his life and the moments of tenderness really speak. I don't know that you notice it at this moment in the gospel because nothing really bad has happened to Jesus yet. But if you reflect from the end of the Jesus story back to this moment, in that process of going, changing the way of life into a way that's going to raise the ire of the empire is God saying, I'm so proud of you. I love you. Like you are dear to me. Mm. Like, I just love that. And just the idea of like God being happy. (laughs) Like, I just, I really, I really love that imagery. Yeah. No, I love that. And I love thinking about it as a way to like, you know, Jesus maybe doesn't know what's going to happen yet and, or how, how this next year is, how hard things are going to get. Yeah. But to, but to try to, you know, fill his pro- proverbial cup really, really overfull, overflowing at this moment as like a, a well that hopefully will be enough to yeah. take him through all the really difficult yeah. things. Yeah. This, this statement that um, the voice from heaven makes at the end reminds me so much of God's call to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, this sort of mm. threefold, you know, in, the, oh, in, yeah. in Genesis, it's, you know, your son, the only one, or your, you know, your only one, your, your number one, whom you love. Yes. This, you know, that's the one. I have never made that connection, but that is so beautiful. Because then it's anticipating where the story is headed. It's anticipating where the story is headed. Although, of course, in the story of Abraham, it doesn't actually have to end in sacrifice of the son. Yeah. Mm, I love that. Mm. Bobby. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that was the mm of Amy, who's ready to go to our sort of closing thoughts. But I didn't ask you first if there's anything else you want to draw out from this. I mean, this is one of those texts that I feel like you could draw more and more from, but I feel like we have, feel like we have pulled out some things that are that are pretty some, essential. Some things that are essential. Okay. So then, of all those things or other things, <laughs> what would you want to? What's the last thing you'd want to put in people's minds as they move into their week? I mean, the way that I'm reading this text today with you. I don't know. It's hard, Amy, because <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, and it's connected to a lot of things we've been talking about this year, about the way of the kingdom of heaven is about justice and righteousness and changing one's actions to fit with the vision of the kingdom of heaven that God has outlined. God has already told you, O oh mortal, in the Torah about justice and kindness and looking out for those who are living on the margins. And this is the way of life to which you have been called. And there is a, there is a, there is a life that one is being called to, not just an introspection, but an introspection that produces a different kind of fruit. The bar is high, and that language of the empire of heaven and the empire of Rome mm-hmm. draws a really sharp contrast for me. Mm-hmm. And to say, look, you... Williamson living in the United States of America and here's the United States of heaven and you got to make a choice of which one of those you're going to inhabit. Like when you hear it that way, I think it really puts the 
puts the ax to the root of the tree to use the metaphor yeah. here. Like there are some yeah. choices to be made and to be made now, and they are hard. Yes. And when you know how this story ends, that well, it's not how the story help. ends, but <laughs> Jesus is going to get <laughs> killed and, and there's life on the other side. Yeah, it does not help. Yeah. And so that bar is, the bar is so high and it's so urgent and there's such a change that we're being called to by this text. So I feel that very strongly. And reading it with you just now, I am also feeling very strongly this very last line. This is my son whom I dearly love. I find happiness in him. Mm -hmm. And that the gentleness of that and the like, how pleased God is. I think not just that it's Jesus, but also that Jesus is going to fulfill the righteousness that God has been trying to get people to fulfill since the very beginning. Jesus and Matthew's telling is going to show us how to how to do that. And so I like to think that even as we're making those hard choices about which empire are we going to live in and what are what are we willing to take on for ourselves, you can sort of hear God in the background saying, no, I, I love you too, Williamson. Like you're my child mm-hmm. who I dearly love. And I find happiness in you. And I feel like that that combination of the difficulty of the calling, but also the, the pleasing of God and the being dearly beloved, I just think there's such a richness in that space. I don't know what that means for like, what do you do when you wake up Tuesday? <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, but you got to do something. Like yeah. I just feel, I feel like it's a call to action and a reminder of belovedness. And those two things go together really powerfully for me. Mm. I love that. What do you see when you read this text? I mean, like you there, there's, there's, I see so much in here. But I think at this moment, I feel especially drawn to this last part, this idea that that John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and this sort of, I don't want to say inversion of leadership, but the different model of leadership that that suggests, especially since we've just been criticizing the leaders of the, you know, sanctioned religious movement or whatever you want to call it, the Pharisees and the Sadducees the other day in religious school. So the rabbi at my congregation is about to have a baby, like seriously any minute, like at any time she could, (laughs) I'm on call at all times to fill in for everything. And so we had religious school yesterday and, and I told the kids, they're probably not going to see her for a while after this. We have a little break on the calendar. And so we had her stand in the middle at the end of our, our tefillah, our prayer. And I taught them how to do the priestly blessings. And there's like a special, you know, movement that you do with your hands and to like hold their hands out and bless the rabbi. And I mean, I kind of just thought it would be cute. (laughs) And also like a moment of kind of closure-ish for the kids because they're not going to see the rabbi in a while. It was really profound to sort Mm. of acknowledge the ways in which like Religious authority and religious power doesn't flow in just one way. Mm. And, and I think all of us as, as congregants or as leaders in our communities, I think when there are moments that we can offer that sort of like passing back and forth of, of energy and power, I think it can really shift. I mean, I, this text would say like it can shift everything. It can change yeah. everything. Because, yeah. because Jesus couldn't have just gotten in that water himself and made this happen. Right. Even yeah. though John didn't, John was like, who am I to do this? As we all say, right? Like, who am I to do this? Well, who are you not to do it? Someone's yeah. got to do it. Who is going to bless the rabbi? So bless the rabbi. You are. Yeah. 
I just think I it's, love I, I love it. I, I love that sort of circular energy of it and the, I don't know, the sharing, sharing mm. of the, the blessing and the struggle. Mm-hmm. That's what I got for you this week, Bobby. I love that, Amy. I love that. It's given me a whole new interpretation of Isaiah 40, <laughs> but that's probably for another, that's probably for another day. <laughs> The outtakes of this episode where we revisit the old text. Now, I'll be interested to hear that someday to get a cup of coffee. Next week, we continue in the saga, picking up right where we're leaving off. Chapter four, um, the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, perhaps eating locusts and wild honey, or maybe that is reserved for John. We'll find out next time. (laughs) We will. I'm looking forward to reading that text with you, Amy. Yep. Sounds good. Have a great week. You too. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many, many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next time when the Narrative Lectionary takes us onward to Matthew chapter 4, the story of Jesus' temptations. Until then, keep on digging.